Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. The Central African Republic is facing some serious challenges right now. Four years ago, the country was on the brink of genocide after the longtime strongman Francois Bozizé was ousted in an armed rebellion. The violence quickly turned sectarian, with Christian and Muslim militias attacking civilian populations and displacing hundreds of thousands of people. UN peacekeepers, along with French forces, deployed to the country and prevented this crisis from spiraling totally out of control. A peace process emerged, a new government was elected, and a tenuous peace took hold. The French forces withdrew last October. About 12,800 UN peacekeepers remain. In recent months, though, violent conflict has started to reemerge, particularly in more remote parts of the country. The trend lines now are not as positive as they were a year ago. This episode on the Central African Republic is in two parts. First, I speak with a member of Congress, David Cicilline of Rhode Island. He visited the country last month as part of a congressional delegation examining the work and role of UN peacekeepers in the country. He describes what he saw in the country and makes a strong case that the peacekeepers in CAR need far more support than they are currently getting. Congressman Cicilline also discusses UN peacekeeping more broadly and why he believes blue helmets are an important pillar of U.S. national security and global stability. After my conversation with a congressman, I play an excerpt from my conversation in May with a photojournalist Marcus Bleasdale, whose work from the Central African Republic was included in the May issue of National Geographic magazine. Marcus has traveled extensively in CAR and covered the violence in 2013. In the excerpt, he discusses the roots of the conflict, how it emerged, and the effect on its population at the time. This includes a conversation of Marcus's journalism and photos from CAR. And I'll post a link to our full conversation back in May. So the crisis in the Central African Republic is unfortunately one of those big undercovered global stories that, you know, from time to time, I do like to use the podcast to shine a light on. I was very thankful to Congressman Cicilline for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk to me about his trip there. And frankly, thankful for the fact that he took a trip there in in the first place to uh, help bring some more uh, attention to this often overlooked global crisis. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with me, please use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. Please send me your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, and I will get it done. All right, now here is my conversation with Congressman David Cicilline. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I have been a big supporter of the UN peacekeeping uh, operations around the world, and I wanted in particular to see the work of the UN peacekeepers in CAR. Uh, and so I went there really to see the progress they were making and to see, you know, the conditions on the ground. It's always much more valuable to be able to be there uh, and to sort of speak directly to the people doing the work in the country. So that's the reason I traveled in August to CAR. And and how did what you see in CAR compare to other peacekeeping missions you've visited? Uh, well, I would say the one you know that I visited right, I mean, most recently before my visit to the Central African Republic was the peacekeeping mission in Liberia. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, the work of the peacekeeping mission in CAR is uh, very challenging and in some ways uh, more challenging than Liberia because of the, you know, absence of a well-developed functioning state. And so that uh, the peacekeeping mission there is really literally keeping the peace in car and, you know, assisting the country and their first democratically elected president in a very long time, build the institutions that are necessary for the proper functioning of a government. Uh, and I think in Liberia, there was a much more well-developed state in place and in car, um, obviously in Bangu and Bambari, there's more of that, but they are, you know, it's in a very fragile state at, at best. Yeah, and Liberia is often considered like a peacekeeping success story. They, uh, the mission is, is in the process of winding down as we speak. Correct. And, you know, they, I think uh, we were there near the end of the peacekeeping in Liberia. And I think uh, Carr, actually, uh, when we returned, uh, we advocated to the secretary, uh, I mean, to the UN representative, that this is a moment actually that we need to support an increase in the UN peacekeeping function in CAR because they're at a very critical moment, I think, in terms of their ultimate success. And MINUSCA, I think, needs an additional infusion of peacekeepers with greater flexibility to do their work. So I think, you know, there's a lot of work that remains in CAR. There's a lot of people working hard, but it's a country that is very much... uh, you know, very fragile. There are, you know, outside of the two kind of major population centers, there's virtually no state institutions in place. And so, um, you know, it's a very big country with not a big population kind of spread out all over. And so it makes, you know, institution building uh, a challenge. Uh, and, you know, they the work to build the military and the police and the criminal justice system, the court is all ongoing. But there's an enormous amount of work that remains. So, so when you visited CAR, what did you see in the peacekeeping mission? What sort of um, capabilities did you see being sort of manifest, and what capacities do you think were were lacking and, and needed improvement? Well, you know, the the peacekeeping mission there is really stretched. I mean, that's the thing for sure that they are something like twelve thousand, uh, thirteen thousand troops, I think it's right? A, I think it's a little less than that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we saw was um, there were there were some real communication challenges that in, in terms of uh, communicating with the people of CAR about the work that's being done and uh, 
So I think there's, there's some communication challenges. There's some logistics challenges in terms of getting personnel around the country. Uh, you know, the infrastructure is very inadequate and, you know, safe passage from one point to another can be very challenging, particularly between Bangu and Bambari. Um, and kind of, kind of creating a secure corridor to transfer the individuals and the commerce that might go in between those two centers is really important. Uh, the National Army is undergoing massive training being led by the European Union, and you know, we visited the training mission, and uh, they're doing a lot of work. One of the challenges they face is their army is not uh, doesn't have weapons because uh, of the arms embargo, and so figuring out how the arms embargo can be lifted for the government, you know, and the uh, FACA, their their military and the police officers to be able to actually do their jobs because even once they're trained, if they don't have weapons, they actually can't uh, go and do their work. And uh, the other issue is uh, there were, we heard a lot about the restrictions that donor tr- countries that are contributing troops impose on MINUSCA uh, in terms of what their troops can do and having greater flexibility so that the commanders on the ground can actually dispatch troops as necessary with greater ease uh, is, I think, a critical improvement. So I think as they think about increasing the UN peacekeepers there, they need to insist really that they have greater flexibility on how they uh, respond to kind of incidents on the ground. Well, well what are some need. of those restrictions? Because I, I feel like, you know, your general public wouldn't sort of normally understand that, you know, different troop contingents from different countries have different restrictions based on their ability to, to operate in a peacekeeping environment. Like, what were some of the restrictions that you saw in place that were uh, hindering sort of the, the peacekeeping uh, force's well, ability to be, like, maximally I'm, effective? I mean, it has, to, it has mostly to do with where they can be dispatched. Um and in what roles? I mean, the commander that we met with said, you know, we just we have donor countries that limit how their troops can be used for in a variety of different ways, and we just need basically to be have you know tr- countries that are donating troops say, you know, these troops are available to be used as Minusca determines necessary, and in the circumstances and in the places that are necessary. So um, I think it's just basically limitations on where people can go and where they can serve, and uh, that imposes real restrictions on the commander in terms of being able to most effectively use the, the force there. So, so you mentioned uh, that one of the, like, the key challenges was just getting around the country. How do you, as an individual American congressman, sort of travel around and, 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 and see these different troop contingents? Uh, so we were, I was accompanied by a, a security officer provided by uh, the UN Foundation. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we tra- traveled in an armored vehicle uh, to move from place to place. But, you know, the, it's there are lots of parts of the country that are completely insecure. They don't have security, police, army, anybody who is providing security. And so, you know, that example of between Bambari and Mongi, that corridor, which is a really important corridor for for the country, um, is pretty impassable because it's not safe um, because of the presence of armed groups. I mean, 65% of the country is controlled by armed groups, so there's a you know that's a significant challenge. Uh, it's also, as you know, you know one of the most undeveloped countries in the world. About one percent of the population has electricity, so that's another challenge. You know 
development in car because of the security conditions is very limited. And uh, the World Bank, I think, um, has obviously a role to play in coordinating, you know, investment and is helping to create conditions that will encourage investment. Uh, USAID is not present in the country. Um, and so there are challenges in terms of encouraging development and investment when the security conditions are so precarious. And I think that's it's sort of a vicious cycle because in the absence of development and investments and economic, you know, opportunities, you're just feeding the the success of armed gangs and groups that are controlling a lot of the country. Um, I'm wondering what you can say about sort of the ability of UN peacekeepers to be effective in places that they are deployed. I mean, one of the the challenges and that I often hear about UN peacekeeping is that they, you know, where they are deployed, they can be effective and can be a deterrent to violence. But they're often, as you said earlier, just stretched too thin and too big of a country that is uh, sort of a complex crisis uh, unfolding. But in the places that, that you visited in in those two cities, Bangui and Bambari, I mean, are they able to um, operate to, to have some sort of like monopoly on, on violence, monopoly on, on security situation? Oh, I think there's no question. I mean, in the absence of the UN peacekeeping mission, it's hard to imagine that anything would be occurring uh, beyond a complete civil war in car. I mean, I think they are the reason that there is, you know, some stability, particularly in the two places where they're most prominent. So I think the challenge is we are often sending UN peacekeepers into areas uh, and into countries in which there's actually not a peace to keep, where they're actually trying to, you know, prevent conflict. And that's not really the role of the UN peacekeepers. They're really about maintaining uh, peace. And so I think we sometimes put them in situations in which they're expected to do more. And, you know, in CAR, uh, since the beginning of the year, there have been 14 peacekeepers killed. So this is a dangerous uh, situation for the UN peacekeepers as well. Um, they're doing a remarkable job, but they clearly need some additional support. And and it's not just important for the future of CAR and the, and the citizens of that country, but it's important to the region. I mean, CAR is in a central location and, you know, has the potential to be you know, a terrorist, you know, haven if left, you know, if it, it collapses and it's in a neighborhood where we have other challenges, uh, Sudan and Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So this is an important place uh, in Central Africa and the dangers that would present to the region and to the, to the interests of the United States long term if this is not successful or significant. And so I think we have a particular responsibility uh, to advocate and support the investments in CAR at this very critical moment, not only for so that the people of that country can have a hopeful future, but also so that we can secure the national security interests of our own country. Uh, so earlier this year, the, the Trump administration uh, announced the withdrawal and, and withdrew uh, some, was it 750 U.S. troops that were operating as part of a, a regional contingent to fight the Lord's Resistance Army, and this included a deployment to the Central African Republic. Uh, what did officials in CAR tell you about the impact of the withdrawal of those U.S. forces to the overall security situation? Uh, they told us very clearly that it had a very negative impact on the security situation, that the, the loss of those troops and the presence of the United States in that region uh, was very significant and uh, 
what was a very successful effort to kind of uh, create some stability in that part quickly deteriorated when the U.S. forces left. And I think in a lot of ways that, you know, because the, the government there has so lim- such limited capacity, people have an unrealistic um, understanding of what U.N. peacekeepers can do. And so, you know, very often they were thinking, why aren't these peacekeepers arresting these criminals who are involved in these armed gangs? Well, the U.N. peacekeepers really don't have an arrest function. And that's not really the the role of MINUSCA, but I think because the state is so fragile and frankly, because the U.S. Uh, and the international community is, is so relied upon for this, for maintaining the, you know, fragile security situation there, they, their expectations are even greater than maybe they should be. But in the particular loss of, of the uh, the U.N. forces in that region, it had a, I think, a very, very significant uh, impact, a deterioration of the security situation in part because obviously we have the best, finest trained troops in the world, um, but also because the United States continues to um, be respected because of our leadership in uh, places like Car and other places around the world. And so we, I heard a lot during the trip about what a negative impact that had on the security situation. Um, so I'm wondering, so you, you went on this trip, you, you observed the situation on the ground in the Central African Republic up close. What, what do you do now as an individual member of Congress to um, try to, to push the needle in the right direction on, on CAR? Well, the, the first thing I do, uh, did when I returned was uh, to uh, put forth a, a letter to Ambassador Haley uh, really outlining, you know, describing my observations on the trip and identifying kind of the key uh, priorities or the, the issues that I think the ambassador should pay close attention to as they uh, review the MINUSCA mission in CAR and make determinations about whether or not to grant an increase in the troop levels there. And so I, you know, in some detail, uh, and this was a bipartisan letter that uh, Congressman Fortenberry and Congressman Dent joined me on. Uh, we lay out in some detail our observations about uh, the things that need to happen in CAR. I also will use it as an opportunity to educate uh, my colleagues and share with my colleagues, uh, both on the Foreign Affairs Committee and in Congress generally, about the work of the peacekeeping mission there and the importance of supporting uh, that ongoing work. I'm a you know, a big proponent of the UN peacekeeping functions. And this uh, trip gives me additional evidence to sort of make the case about how important it is that we continue to support UN peacekeepers. And, and on that question, why is it that you have become a proponent, a supporter of, of UN peacekeeping? I mean, of, of all the issues in the world, um, you know, why did you land on, on UN peacekeeping to, to be a supporter of? Well, I mean, I've had the opportunity as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee to uh, pay close attention to the work of the United Nations generally, and particularly the work of UN peacekeepers and missions around the world. And uh, these are, you know, heroic soldiers doing really difficult work in some of the most difficult parts of the world uh, with great success. Um, UN peacekeepers are not perfect, and they've had their own share of challenges. But, you know, it's when you visit a country like Car and you think these are... UN peacekeepers from countries, 26 countries all over the world who are in CAR doing their part to help create conditions that will allow that country to continue to build a democracy and allow the people of CAR to have some prospect or some possible 
future. And, you know, it's one thing to fight and defend and uh, try to advance peace in your own country. But when people are traveling to another country in another part of the world and sacrificing in the way they do to help bring some democracy and peace to people in another country, I think it's remarkable and worthy of our support. And uh, I've seen a number of examples of these UN peacekeeping missions where, but for the presence of UN peacekeepers, you know, full-fledged civil war would break out and many more lives would be lost. And so I will continue to be a great supporter of the UN peacekeeping missions. I mean, I'm wondering, maybe this is is just like a more of a political question, but, you know, of all the places in the world, like the Central African Republic is, you know, certainly not a primary U.S. security interest, maybe not even a secondary interest, but yet you, as a member of Congress, just decided to, to go there. I mean, like, what do you tell your constituents uh, in Rhode Island about, like, why, of all the places, of all the things you could be doing, you decided to, to go to the Central African Republic and, and spend your time there? Well, I mean, I, I tell people, like, these trips are never easy trips, and uh, they're, you know, challenging security environments to be in. Uh, but it's important, you know, as we think about American leadership in the world and about not only our ability to help shape events around the world, but our ability to promote, you know, a safe world in which Americans can live and and, and uh, be protected from threats around the world. The best way to do that is to encourage, you know, the development and sustainability of democracies around the world and to reduce conflict. And it's a much less expensive proposition if we support peacekeeping and democracy building than if we are threatened by engagement or the impact of, of military conflict. So I think people understand we live in a very connected world and the United States has an important role along with our our international partners to promote peace and democracy around the world and uh, to support the UN's work to, to reduce conflict and to help uh, build peace in places that have had decades of conflict. And uh, you know, those are those are investments we need to make, or we're going to pay tenfold when you know conflicts erupt and the United States or the interests of the United States are threatened in some way. So, so I mean, I think people get that. I think people understand that you know you can no longer just sort of imagine the United States can only worry about what happens within the borders of this country, but that we are impacted by a very interconnected world and the threats of terrorism and. Uh, other kinds of international criminal activity pose a real threat to the United States if we don't actively engage in the world and build alliances and partnerships with emerging democracies around the world. And I think that's why the work we do in places like CAR is important. So on on peacekeeping, I mean, how concerned are you right now that um, U.S. support for peacekeeping operations around the world is is somewhat tenuous given you know the budget request by the White House and you know current negotiations in in Congress I mean to what extent do you think Congress you know your colleagues might actually underfund UN peacekeeping and undermine its ability to do all the the things that you've just mentioned Well I mean I think the the administration the current administration has made statements and proposed budgets that significantly undermine our international uh, aid and development and, frankly, leadership in the world. I mean, the president proposed a 32% or 34% uh, 
reduction in the State Department. I mean, that's in, inconceivable to me that we would ever move forward that. I mean, it would be impossible for the United States to do its job uh, in protecting the interests of the American people and advancing our interests around the world uh, and engaging in a meaningful way diplomatically with the rest of the world with that level of, of cut. And uh, I think the good news is, while that may be the president's position and the administration's position, it's a pretty bipartisan, there's been a pretty bipartisan rejection of that in the Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think uh, we had a hearing on the State Department budget and both sides of the aisle were pretty emphatic that that kind of reduction would undermine America's ability to uh, do it, you know, do our work around the world and to continue to be an important leader uh, in international affairs. And so I think we're going to continue to face an administration that proposes that. And sadly, I've not seen a lot of leadership from the current Secretary of State in opposition to those drastic cuts. But I think the good news is the men and women who have served in the Congress, particularly the Foreign Affairs Committee, recognize that if we're going to fulfill our responsibilities to the American people and maintain our leadership in the world, it requires deep engagement in the uh, diplomatic work. And, you know, you can't have a robust diplomatic agenda without diplomats and without a robustly funded State Department and without supporting international organizations like the United Nations and the UN peacekeepers. And it's probably worth pointing out that the U.S. doesn't have an ambassador to the Central African Republic, right? Uh, correct. Actually, uh, when I left, the uh, ambassador uh, left on the same flight. He had uh, just retired from the State Department, so they have a charge d'affaires right now. There's no ambassador there. Uh, well, well, Congressman, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you to Congressman Cicilline. And now here is my conversation with Marcus Bleasdale from back in May, which would give you a really good explanation of the background of this conflict in the Central African Republic, how it arose and the effect that it's having on the people of the country. Here's Marcus. Well, I think for us to understand what was happening in 2012, we actually have to go back to 2003 when Francois Bozese came to power, the, the previous president. And he came to power using quite a lot of foreign fighters to, um, to give him the security uh, that he needed to overthrow Patese, who was the president that he was ousting at the time. Uh, as, it came, as, it, as it happened that Patese... Uh, lost power in a bloodless coup. He was out of the country at the time and Bozese took power in 2003. But a lot of the people that Bozese used to seize power and, and to give him the fighting strength uh, expected some form of payment and they didn't receive it. In fact, Bozese uh, uh, was, was quite um, specific in his targeting of them. And many of them ended up uh, in exile in different countries and then imprisoned in different countries. So he didn't just stiff his contractors, he imprisoned his contractors. Oh. Or he asked other foreign leaders in different countries around the Central African Republic to imprison them, yes. Uh -huh. And so that was, you know, and so Jutodia, Michael Jutodia, who then became the leader of the Seleka movement and then the president of the Central African Republic in 2013, he was one of those. He was in exile in Benin and then he was in jail in Benin. And many of the people that he recruited uh, post 2003 going into 2005 there was something uh, called the bush wars uh, that, that lasted several years and and Jatodia's men and uh, and many of the Seleka fighters that were then rallied together in 2012 were fighting those bush wars so we fast forward 
into 2012, and, and Jutori had now been released from imprisonment in Benin, as had many of his um, other followers. There was other significant people. Um, Nouradine Adam had come back from uh, working as a security official in um, the in Dubai, I think. And uh, Mohammed Bahar, who turned out to be the head of intelligence for the Seleka, had been released from jail in Chad. There were many others that were also in jail, spattered around either Chad or Cameroon or Benin. And, uh, and so now these people came together in 2012. And, you know, in the kind of old concept of um, understanding how conflicts work, some people would say that they had, you know, real grievance. They had been, um, uh, they had, you know, been, as you say, st- st- stuffed by Bozese. They had been mistreated by him. They'd been imprisoned. And they really wanted to uh, make a point. Whether they actually wanted power, ultimate power and leadership at that time is a big question. And, and the people that I've been speaking to in car at length have, uh, are uh, several different minds on this. And, so, and many academics as well don't believe that, that Jutodia thought that he could take power at that time. What they were looking for was some form of political legitimacy to give them access to some form of political rent, if you mm-hmm. use the phrase of Alex Deval. You know, it's they were looking for access to revenues. And no matter what political situation they could manage to insert themselves in, that the, they just they would they were focusing on trying to get access to to revenues. And whether that meant that they would be Minister of Interior or Minister of Mines or governor of a particular province. After a period of negotiations and peace deals, they, they didn't really know. But uh, I think initially that was their focus. So how did then, this then turn into them controlling the government and the uh, sort of an ethnic-based conflict uh, taking over the country? Yeah, so um, essentially the, 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 the rebel groups, Seleka rebel group, were, were halted in Sibut, which is about 100 kilometers from the capital. 180 kilometers from the capital of, of uh, Central African Republic, Bongi. And um, they, there was then a, a, a meeting in Libreville. Uh, they, they, they signed a Libreville agreement to establish a government of national unity, and that was in January 2013. But then in March 2013, the Seleka rebels then continued towards Bongi. They didn't trust Buzese. They didn't trust this uh, government of national unity. Uh, they thought that Bozezi was going to do exactly what he'd done to them in 2008, um, which was try to come to some sort of peace deal and then try to imprison them afterwards. And so they went straight for the capital. And at that time, um, Jutodia and the Seleka coalition took control of Bongi, and Jutodia declared himself president in March 2013. And that then resulted in quite a, an oppressive, violent rule from Jutodia's Seleka government and most of the people in the Central African Republic who were living in the bush villages and the towns fled into their farms, which are normally located about five or six kilometers away from the main roads, away from their villages in the bush. And they then relocated to those places. So most of the Central African Republic was displaced at that time. And I remember one of the first trips that Peter and I made in the Central African Republic, we drove from Bongi to Bosangoa, and and, uh, and we were the first car that wasn't a Celica vehicle that had gone up that road in six months. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever traveled in Africa, but if you're going through a road, we traveled for 200, 
250 kilometers, not a single soul did we see on the road. No and, one and like I, tried to come up to you to sell you anything or anything like that? Nothing. There, was a, huh. there, there wasn't a single person we saw on that trip. Um, the second trip we what made... What did that tell you when, 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 when you saw it? I mean, did you realize how bizarre that was at the moment? You could feel the fear. You could see, you know, the villages, of course, had been attacked. Many of them had been burnt to the ground. Um, and they were just empty. You saw the goats and the chickens and the, and the pigs from, you know, the livestock of the people that used to live there just, just kind of wandering around free. And the, the whole village is either burnt or closed up and, and clearly no one living there. And, and it was fear. Uh, because the way that the Seleka used to roam through the towns and the villages was they'd drive through here. And if they if they saw anyone, they just spray bullets into the village, hoping that, you know, they would continue this spread of fear. And uh, and that's the way that the population of the Central African Republic lived and, uh, until uh, the, 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 the anti-Balaka, which is a, a more of a grassroots militia, came out of the self-defense forces kind of coordinated attacks in December in 2013 and, and that started to change the dynamics slightly and 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 this fear that that had been experienced by the majority of the population of the Central African Republic was channeled through the Antibalaka at the Selika and uh, and that Selika regime then fell in January 2014 and as a result of that Selika uh, government disintegrating and the coalition disbanding a little bit earlier then the the the, the leader of that movement michael jutodia was was out of the country at the time he, when he resigned he was in in Jemena and never returned so it, that left all of these fighters some of whom were from the central african republic some of them were from chad some of them were from sudan many of them there as mercenaries looking to you, you know earn money for their for their weapons and their fight uh, turned on again, uh, the, the people of the Central African Republic and, and, and tried to retreat, but also whilst they were doing that, were looting and burning and attacking. Um, and so this uh, local group, the anti-Balaka, that had, had come, you know, grassroots that had been made up of ex-Faka soldiers, the Force Armée Centrafrique soldiers that had fled when, uh, when the, when the um, Bozezi government fell, plus the local defense forces when they came together um, uh, to chase the Seleka out of the country, the local population then followed in this almost tidal wave of relief and anger, and they then focused their anger on the largely innocent Muslim population in the Central African Republic. And, and that, and then you saw this these these sort of massive refugee movements out of the country at that time. Exactly. Yeah, and so you know. For, there was a lot of negotiation with the UN at the time. Uh, I think the UN didn't want to facilitate um, the movement, that movement of population. Mm -hmm. It'd be so like it facilitating became, ethnic cleansing in, in, in a way, which is... There were some yeah. advocacy groups that did call it that. Amnesty International used those words. I know that. Uh, I know Human Rights Watch didn't. But it could be, if you kind of look at this, you know, there were hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of Muslims who left the country to go to Chad and Cameroon as a result of the violence that was being perpetrated against them. And so, you know, there, there are legal discussions that we can have about whether this was ethnic cleansing or not. But the end, the final impact was the same, that we had the lot largely, the, 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 the whole of the population, the Muslim population of the Central African Republic was moved 
both out of the country and into the northeastern part of the country. Yeah. Apart from a small enclave in Bangui, in an area called Pique Sank, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where where uh, s- uh, some Muslims stay and still stay. Well, uh, can I ask you about that? Because I, I know there are a number of your photographs from PK Sank in that Nat Geo uh, magazine article. Can you can you sort of describe sort of what you saw in in that uh, Muslim quarter of of Bangui and and how you went about documenting that? Yeah, I, I, after the kind of initial exodus um, of the Muslim population, essentially the Muslim population was moved from or chased out of the areas they used to live, and they were kept in these enclaves. So there was a group of Muslims uh, living in Piquet Saint, and there was a group of Muslims living in Piquet The Piquet is, is like kilo, meaning kilometer five or kilometer 13 piquet 13 is kilometer 13 13 kilometers from the center of the city yeah. i think that's like uh, how detroit organizes their their uh, <laughs> their city planning as well but yeah go on <laughs> okay yeah, I, I don't want to make any analogy between Bungie and detroit <laughs> but uh but i you know i think uh, the, essentially these enclaves became uh, really flashpoints and so we worked very closely in piquet 13 and in piquet 5 documenting uh, how this Muslim population was living. Uh, they had you know, very little in terms of resources or food or nourishment. And, uh, and they were being kept in this space with no possibility of leaving. And so uh, we saw at times that anti-Balaka, we were, it was happening when we were there, were throwing in grenades or, or firing RPGs into these enclaves where these tightly packed populations were living. You know, tens of thousands of people living in a space where normally 1,000 or 2,000 people would be living. And uh, and the same thing was happening in Piquet Sank. And what was happening in Piquet Sank, one of the photographs that you'll see in the article is the uh, is at a funeral, actually, um, of uh, a young girl who'd been killed on, on the way to church. And her family then decided to take out uh, revenge against the, 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 they thought, the Muslims who killed their their daughter or their sister their cousin there were many people involved and so they went out into the streets and found the nearest muslim they could find and 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 killed him and the, and they were when they were dragging that body towards a fire they'd built to burn, burn the body they were then shot by peacekeepers and of course where this is all happening during a funeral and where peter and i are documenting this at the time with, you know, then suddenly the bullets are flying and you don't know whether these are bullets are from anti-Balaka or from the peacekeepers, or, but they're still flying. So it, it's a, that, that, that photograph actually ends in, a, in quite a, a, a chaotic scene um, yeah. of tit-for-tat killing on the streets. It, it was quite dramatic. I mean, in, in those situations, like, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking, I have to keep my camera going, I have to keep taking photographs or are you thinking I need to, to, you know, get myself to safety? Like what, how do you approach those situations? Like what, what, what's your process? Well, I, the first thing is, of course, is security. Um, but normally the most secure place when things like that are happening is exactly where you are. If you're still, you know, if, if you haven't been shot, you just kind of, we, I, I normally look around for the most secure space 
but but of course the second reaction is you're there to document that's your job and and you try as best you can to carry on shooting and filming i was both shooting stills and footage at that time uh, and we have a film coming out next week i think a short documentary uh, that that covers some of these aspects and uh, and and so i i continue to film and and of course there's a lot of camera shake and there's a lot of movement and there's a a lot of chaos, but hopefully somewhere in that you, you manage to represent that chaos and you represent that fear because you're living it uh, with the population that you're documenting. And, and can uh, I ask you about an, another photograph in that series? And I, I think it's from PK5, but forgive me if it's not. Um, and it, it's one that just kind of really just like like arrested me in, in, in a way. Um, you have this this two. It looks like it appears to be a couple, um, a young couple, maybe in their in their early twenties, with really sort of almost vacant, sad looks in their eyes. But this this man is wearing a tank top with like a smiling Borat, with it holding an, an American flag. You know the the Borat character, Sasha Baron Cohen's character in the movie from like yeah. ten years yeah. ago, and yeah. it's just such like a an amazing contrast i just like i couldn't stop looking at it kind of chuckling kind of feeling sad kind of just like being having like my mind blown by that juxtaposition H- how did you come to that photo can you tell me a little bit like behind that, that what the story is behind that photo yeah that was more uh, one of the more recent trips so that was taken in december of 2016 so just a few months ago and and i'd returned to document how the conflict had uh, changed the way people were living and how it was continuing and where it was continuing and what was happening to the populations that had been trapped. And and that couple is actually a Pearl couple. The Pearl uh, are um, a, a group of uh, cattle herders, mostly nomads, who, who look after the huge beef populations that roam the Central African plains. It doesn't, they just don't stay in Central African Republic, but they move from Chad to Central African Republic to Cameroon, and and they follow the rains and they follow the grass essentially, and so um, many of these pearl who were largely Muslim um, were caught up in this uh, anti-Muslim fight post twenty January twenty fourteen, and and uh, and many of them were attacked uh, uh, along with their livestock. Uh, the the anti-Balaka saw this as an opportunity to. Uh, loot the extraordinarily valuable um, beef stocks that the pearl were responsible for, and this this group that you see in that photograph were were trapped in very close to Bongi, and then they were shipped into this enclave by the United Nations uh, into Piquet where they were given a place to stay and a place to stay safely um, before that you know they could then maybe return to their herd if they still had one. And, and continue their livelihood. But now they live in Piquet Sank and they've really, and, you know, whilst they've been living amongst conflict, they now live in this urban space and they actually quite enjoy it and don't want to return to their nomad lifestyle. And so this couple are now living in that, in Piquet Sank, trying to build a life for themselves. I mean, how, how did you decide to, to capture that image? I was look. I was trying to shoot a series of photographs um, uh, that, that focused on this concept of, of neighbors, and I didn't just do this in Bangui, but I did it throughout the country. So I was focusing on groups and communities that had come back together again, both um, Christians, animists, and Muslim communities that had come to live back together again in their communities, 
um, post this sectarian violence. And, uh, and so I was, I was looking for those communities that, um, th- this was quite evident. And, 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 uh, in Pique Sank, actually, there are quite a few Christian families that have come back to live next to their Muslim neighbors. Um, and the Muslim neighbors have said, you come here, you're going to be safe. We'll protect you. This conflict wasn't about religion. This conflict isn't about religion. This was, you know, religions being mismanaged and manipulated by different leaders of different rebel groups. And, and, and some people are clear, clearly aware of that and are very protective about, you know, very different Muslim groups. And so this group were, was a, a part or this, this couple was part of that shoot that they were in Pique Sank living close by a Christian family, living close by another Muslim family. And, uh, and, I was, and, and actually it was all spread around the area two years before where I'd shot this funeral. Mm-hmm. And where this violence had been at its peak, and and this tit for tat killing has re- resulted in nine people being killed that morning, and they all lived ar- around the same block, and it was just very interesting to see how life had changed and how communities and families and neighbours were coming back together, trying to defy this um, abuse of their religion in a way by by different rebel leaders. And, and I mean, and, and when taking that specific photo, I mean, did you sort of recognize like the, 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 the sort of juxtaposition or the absurdity of, of that? Yeah. I mean, uh, of course the t-shirt helps, yeah. but, but also, you know, it's that Western reference that feels so lost in a space like that. And that very clear, you know, what, what does that represent? It represents Hollywood. It represents absurdity. It represents satire. It represents all of these things that were totally absent in this central space in central in, in Bonghi. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so it just seems so absurd that somehow, you know, that space was represented with these people in that place. It's, uh, it was very bizarre. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Congressman Cicilline and to Marcus for speaking with me both recently and back in May about the Central African Republic. I do want to remind you that applications are still open for the Humanity in Action Summer Fellowship Program. If you are a recent university grad or a current university student, do check out this program. I participated in the program years ago and it changed my life and it will change yours. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and you can find the link to the application right there. In other news, I have a good bonus episode coming up for you premium subscribers that takes a look at how this spat between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un Uh, is upending and challenging traditional conventions of deterrence and deterrence theory. What do Trump's tweets and uns lashing out at the president as a dotard have to say about nuclear deterrence more broadly? It's a good conversation. It'll be posted next week as a premium episode. For you amazing people who help support the podcast every single month by making a monthly recurring donation on 
Patreon. Thank you so much to premium subscribers. This is one of your rewards. Uh, others include a complimentary subscription to my daily news clips service. I put together the top global news of the day and send it to your inbox every weekday morning. You can get that uh, as a uh, premium subscriber as well. Thank you so much. Just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link, and that's how you can access these rewards and more. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.